Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with a extra special guest, JT Forbes, who is the first person in 86 years to serve as the simultaneous leader of the Indiana University Alumni Association and the Indiana University Foundation. JT, congrats on making history and welcome to the show. Great. It's great to be here. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me. Well, we were commenting as we jumped on that it, uh, you know, JT is one of the people that over our 10 plus year entrepreneurial journey, it's lined up very well with his leadership uh, at Indiana University. We have consistently been able to run into each other at various conferences, case conferences, the Big Ten Development Conference, whatever it may be. Um, and we haven't run into each other for a long time. So we made sure to reach out and, and, and have this connection happen. Yeah, it's great to see you and great to get a chance to chat with you today. And well, even if we have a few eavesdroppers joining us today. <laughs> exactly. And so I did want to make sure that in addition to your uh, success in leadership in many different capacities in the case in broader advancement community, that our listeners also know that you were the drum major of the Terre Haute South Vigo High School Marching Band. And I would like to just go back in time to that moment, because as much as I've gotten to know you over the years, I don't know much about that guy who was the drum major and the acclaimed tuba player. And I wanna know more about who he was and ultimately what inspired you to go to Indiana University. Well, um, you've clearly done your homework to, to know those things. I've worked very hard to bury my um, status as Lord of the Prance in high school. And for all of our listeners, we're going to drop in a clip of uh, JT as drum. May, may, just kidding. We haven't tracked that down yet. But if we can, we will. There's so many things on the Internet that I hope never get surfaced. Um, yeah. So when you're growing up, I don't think if anybody's honest, they would ever admit that you have these moments where you say, well, I'm going to be an alumni engagement officer, or gee, wouldn't it be fun to run a, a, a foundation? And if you find somebody like that, really develop them, because it's pretty amazing once you get in these roles. Doctor, so no idea. admissions, I'd, or advancement, I'd, yeah, right. I had no idea that this was even a career until um, I came to Indiana University um, and met um, Ellen Tell me about the decision. Was it a no-brainer for you to go to IU? Was it uh, a tough decision? What was your process? It was a tough decision and it came down to money. My, I was raised by a single mom who was a school teacher and um, I got admitted to a couple of very elite schools in the East. And when we sat down and talked about it, um, it was just going to be tough to swing that. Um, and so she said, look, if you go to Indiana, um, yeah, you'll be close to home. I know you want to get away from me, but <laughs> um, but you also will be able to have a more complete college experience. If you go to the other schools, you're going to be working and going to class, and that's all you'll be able to do. And um, you, we will both go into deep debt. So it just became a no-brainer to come to Indiana. And I was a little disappointed because I was really, my head was turned by the other schools. But once I got involved here and I really saw what an incredible place this was, a whole world opened up to me and it's become a constant in my life ever since. I boomeranged in and out of here three times, but I always come back because there's just something really special about the place. And it's always been a place that's invited me back when I've gathered experience and insights from other places. 
to be a leader. So, um, JT, did, did you have any siblings or uh, had others kind of gone down this path? No, I'm an only child, and I had two cousins that were like sisters because we spent all our time in the together in the summer. But I'm pretty much a only child. And from what I understand, so only child, single mom, going to Indiana University, you did not waste that opportunity. And your uh, resume as a student leader looks more impressive than most lifelong resumes. So what inspired you to throw yourself into those various um, activities? And just what were those, I don't know, early experiences, freshman year, sophomore year that you think back on as being somewhat formative? Well, a lot of the way I approached the world at that stage of my life was really influenced by my high school history teacher who introduced us to the civil rights movement um, and the women's movement in history. And it just ignited in me a desire to be a leader that brought people together to make things better. And so when I came in and I um, failed in every election in high school, I couldn't get elected to anything in high school. And then I came to Indiana and I got involved in student government and um, pass some laws to criminalize hazing and deal with selective service issues and look at the cost of higher education, get a student um, representation on the state's commission for higher education. And I just felt like I found um, more of a calling of how to bring people together to do that. And Indiana is a unique place where if a student leader shows up prepared, willing to do the work and have the humility to listen and learn and work with people, the whole place opens up to you as a place where your voice is heard and your um, your work is respected. And it just was a really um, fertile environment to learn how to be a leader. And you did end up serving as student body president, which big deal, large institution. I don't know what class sizes were then, but just tell me a little bit about your decision to run and you know that is a real political campaign if if you will and you, you need to learn all of those skills um what what do you think back on as you reflect on that experience yeah the the experience of being a student body president at iu bloomington where i did that was really like being the mayor of a small town you had to run a campaign you had to figure out how to finance it you had to put together a slate of officers and and um people that would run the legislative branch and you had to go out and make your case. And so really, in my mind, was a like running probably now, it'd probably be like a city council seat in a, in a medium-sized town. But that process teaches you a lot about how to mobilize people, how to listen, how to mobilize coalitions. And then, you know, there's the getting elected part. And then the real growth comes when you have to go from being elected to actually governing. And again, it was a, a really rich experience. There were about 25,000 students. Student government at that time represented all students on and off campus. And we had a lot of big issues to deal with in terms of facilities, um, um, divestment in South Africa, um, the rising need to recognize and make IU a place of belonging for all sorts of BIPOC people. Um, and a number of other kind of academic issues that were were underway. And so it was a big job with a lot of work and I have the mediocre GPA for those two semesters to show for it. I was going to say, it's hard to imagine, you know, taking on those issues and being the student uh, all, all day, but you prioritize what mattered and it sounds like there are no regrets. No, it was a great experience, even though I did get called into the Dean's office for the College of Arts and Sciences and 
was very gently but firmly reminded why I came to college to get a degree. Um, and that was a good point because it turned my head back to, I had a victory lap is what I called it an extra year because of my class load. And that was a really great year because I was really second year senior and I really got to develop some really deep relationships with faculty in areas that I thought were interesting because I had enough electives left, left to really take courses that really mattered to me. And some of those professors are people that um, really left an indelible mark on how I approach the world and how I think about things. I mean, I still make obscure references to the literature I read that year, and it's a great experience. I have had somewhat of a window into life at Indiana University and recently had the opportunity to host Matthew Ewing, who's the CEO of the Boise State uh, Foundation on the podcast. And he shared a lot about what is known as the greatest week in college or something like that being his involvement with the little 500, which is one of the only things not on your IU resume or else I just missed it. So was he overhyping the little 500 or is it the real deal? It's really special tradition. It's a bike race that happens in the spring. It really means the most to the students and the riders in the race because they're part of a um, you know, multiple decades long tradition that really um, gives IU kind of a unique tradition that most schools don't have around cycling and competition. Um, apparently I need to update my resume because I actually am um, in the last 11 years, I am undefeated in the little 500. I have never lost a pace lap because the most coveted role I have with that tradition is not being responsible for it as the steward of it, as the foundation president, but as the pace car driver. So now, this sounds end, like this sounds I've like a video. This sounds like a video we could track down. You could find that. I'm really kind of disappointed. I think it's the most important part of the race, the start, but somehow they focus more on the cyclists than they do those first couple laps where we get the race off to a good start. But oh well, that's just you know, toiling and anonymity behind the wheel. <laughs> So as you said, you did not uh, go to college with the aspirations of doing what it is you're doing now. You, I'm sure by way of your work in student leadership had substantial exposure to alumni or perhaps the alumni association. I know there's a strong student alumni uh, organization uh, nowadays as well. At what point did you start to get an inkling that this was a profession? Um, and I know you ended up sticking uh, pretty close to uh, to home by way of your work with the Lilly School of Philanthropy right out of college. But what was the evolution as you went from not knowing this was a thing to it becoming a real potential career path? I blame my career on Charlotte Zietlow and Ellen Ehrlich. When I was student body president, Charlotte and Ellen came to me and said, we'd like to have students more involved in the Campus United Way campaign. And when I look back on that moment, up to that point, I had kind of a, a um, what I'd say is kind of a two-way lens of how I looked at the world. I thought the world was run either by business or government. And they helped me see how a whole network of nonprofits and people donating money and mobilizing causes, um, and both whether they be political or social, was all enabled through this kind of 
third philanthropic sector of our society. And so in the process of getting everybody organized to um, all the student organizations to do something to contribute to the United Way as a thank you to the community, um, I this whole world opened up to me. Um, that later led to Ellen's um, husband, Tom Ehrlich, who was one of the leaders in the college community service and experiential learning movement through Campus Compact and the Campus Outreach Opportunity League. Um, he asked me when I graduated to go work from what was then called the Center on Philanthropy, now the Lilly School, on a project to work across all of our campuses to understand how we could better engage students in public and community service. And so that led to being at the center, being one of the first students there, and really being introduced to a completely new field of academic um, learning and discovery in, in uh, philanthropic studies. And the way the center approached it, and I think the school now is unique among the schools that do this because it was grounded in um, the liberal arts as well as all the science of practice. And so it was really a unique experience that just kind of kept one thing kept leading to another um, that led to work in government relations for the university. Then I boomeranged to the state Senate and worked in the state Senate. Then I came back. I, I got in this pattern where I would leave at the end of presidencies and then get hired back by the next one. And then, um, so I worked in the Marcom area of the universities for a while, really positioning them for success, either in enrollment or fundraising. And then did government relations work to mobilize coalitions around my biomedical research. Then I worked for Cummins. Can we talk and it just a led bit one thing about... to another and all rooted in what Ellen and, and Charlotte did to introduce me to this idea of how communities mobilize for good. I want to talk a little bit about a couple of those job titles that we could easily just sort of skip through, but I don't think I've had a guest in a hundred episodes or so that has had roles like this. Coordinator of Federal Relations and then AVP for Public Affairs and Government Relations. What is federal relations and government relations for a place like Indiana University? What does that entail? Well, global research universities are highly dependent on government support for basic research. So the coordination, coordinator of federal relations job had a lot to do in those early days of really figuring out how we worked with the VP for research to position IU for success in peer-reviewed competitive um, research grant activity. Um, we also did some projects to improve the campuses where we had communities. So we worked with the Corps of Engineers on a project to build a pedestrian bridge that linked our campus in South Bend to property adjacent that allowed that campus to grow. Uh, we worked on student aid issues. We worked, um, we were one of the schools that helped really get behind something called the Science Coalition, which in the Clinton administration was really focused on increasing funding for NIH and NSF. And really in that period, I think set us, set the country up well to be able to mobilize on things like COVID, cancer, and um, the whole field of genomics, all because there was a bipartisan, multi-sectoral effort to really say basic scientific research was key to economic competitiveness and health and well-being of our citizens. And I think that work really um, bore more fruit than we even realized sometimes. And so it was, that was a great job. Um, and, and is the role effectively lobbying? I mean, is that the best way to put it, or or liaising with lobbyists? I mean, who are you yes, working with? Don't tell my mother. Talking? Don't tell I my won't. mother I was a lobbyist in Washington. That's exactly what it was. Um, my job, because it was coordinator, and, and so the new role was really... Pardon me? 
I was just going to say, who are the people that you were working with, rubbing shoulders with? I mean, what was that sort of um, experience like when you think about some of the conversations that I'm sure you were a part of? So sure. Um, a lot of it was really working cooperatively with the Big Ten. The Big Ten, you know, everybody thinks it's all about athletic competition. The Big Ten is one of the most cohesive um, co conferences in terms of its academic and research um, alignment and similarity programmatically. So all the people that did federal relations really met monthly to work together on things like student loan reform, this research and science coalition issues, things like that. And so part of it was just working in coordination with those other schools to make our case on Capitol Hill and at the agencies. And it was kind of a team effort. If somebody had relationships that we could leverage for the benefit of the whole, we did that. Uh, we did a whole day where we took our presidents to the Hill and they met with the speaker um, and the majority leader of the, um, the Senate. And um, really to make our case to, to those leaders as well around these same issues. Um, and, and then working with our delegation so they understood the things that were coming before them that had an impact on the state's namesake university. We worked very closely arm in arm with Purdue University who everybody thinks is our rival. But really, those two institutions have been really partners in progress in this state forever. And so all those rivalries on game day were set aside to really win the competition for attention and resources and policies that really created opportunity for students. And it was a really powerful experience for me at a pretty young age. JT, can I ask, given that so much of your work was at the intersection of let's call it politics or government and education, even back to your student body president leadership, did you ever think about running for office? Or do you mind me asking, like when you were getting exposure on the Hill, did it make you more or less excited about um, politics potentially? When I graduated, was my plan to be um, president of the United States or settle for being the senior senator from Indiana? And, um, and after a while working in that process, I just realized that the real passion I have and my real faith in how good things happen is not one that's bound by a single sector. Like, you know, you can be a really enlightened business leader, or you can be a person in government. And I just will have to say, if you want me to be totally honest and transparent, that I've become increasingly frustrated over the years in the ability of government to really have elected officials who feel accountable for solving problems. It seems like we've gotten more and more in a world where it's more about fomenting drama and division than it is to really solve a problem. We shouldn't act like a bipartisan infrastructure bill is a grand achievement. That's job one. And we've just gotten away from that. So I've just found more and more of my passion around bringing people together around common purpose to make good happen in whatever way is possible. I've just found that to become very hard to do in government and probably my younger self would probably just um, become very disillusioned about that. That said, I find so much hope in the young people I see going into public service now and the student leaders we have now who just don't seem to be as interested in fighting the old fights and living in this kind of gerrymandered partisan world. And I think they're gonna find ways to solve this problem by working across business government and the nonprofit sector to, to make a difference. The people I meet that work on the Hill are there to gain experience, not to really pick a side. And so I think it's gonna get better, but it's certainly reached a low point these days. 
Well, should you decide to throw your hat in the ring for president of the United States, I suspect that the advancement community will rally behind you, JT. <laughs> you right. you well, we'll have to use your tech, your products to figure out how to mobilize people to exactly. Do <laughs> so you did a quick stint at Michigan State University, and I just have to ask because you know it's fairly uh, it's 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 common for folks to start as a student at their alma mater, somehow along the way learned that advancement could be a career path and work uh, and, and experience some upward mobility. But then, you know, there, there comes that moment of, do I sort of stay just with the alma mater forever or uh, do I make a leap? And given how connected you were to um, Indiana University and just how much a part of your, frankly, you know, identity it was at that point, what was it like uh, heading up uh, to Michigan State and really selling someone else's mission for the first time? Sure. Well, first, I got to say that I got really good advice from President Miles Brand um, because they said, I love serving in the university and I want to move up here. What should I do? And his answer was, go someplace else. You need to have experience beyond the known and familiar of your alma mater. It was the best advice ever. I love my time at Michigan State. They have They have such a strong... Um, land-grant culture and commitment they um, that really is in line with my values about the impact of education. They're an institution that's proven that um, both being accessible and connected to practical application is not um, competitive with being excellent in research and all the things that universities compete on in ranking. Um, it's an institution with a really a pioneering institution in terms of its global outlook and its practical problem solving and also the, the work it does to really be committed to providing an extraordinary education. So it was really easy pivot to me. I also had got an opportunity to work with great leaders there who really also mentored and developed me. And I remember having kind of one of those oh crap moments where the way I was able to get things done at IU was just I'd been around long enough that I had a lot of influence and you know capital. And I had a moment where I went in to see a dean and she was really tough on me um, and made me realize I have to find a new way. I got to know how to make my case independent of all the network and brand equity and knowledge. And it was such a great learning experience. Um, and the funny thing about that was that Dean was an IU alumna <laughs> and we've become lifelong friends. In fact, when I left, I had to leave because my family life kind of unraveled there. Um, my wife divorced me. And so we came back to Indiana to get home. But I remember telling that Dean and she just kind of broke into tears. And it just shows you that sometimes the people that do the most good for you are the ones that help you grow the most by being the toughest on you. And so it was just a great experience there because um, I had to learn how to act and think independent of any loyalty or, or cultural um, capital I had um, based on the institution. So I have a really soft spot in my heart for um, that. And I always feel like I'll always feel like a Spartan because of it. Well said. And you ended up uh, heading back to Indiana University, doing more work in the leadership uh, within the public affairs and government relations realm. Uh, and then you had an interesting stint at Cummins, which was not probably the thing that folks would have guessed would be the next move that one would make given what your career had been up until that time. Um, and I also would note that it was sort of 
in concert with the financial crisis. And I'm just curious, um, as you reflect on that experience and other folks that maybe are thinking, you know, the pros and cons of being in industry versus um, being within the higher ed community, what, what stands out to you from that time? Sure. Well, I went to Cummins because I had had a friend that I'd worked with in the Indiana Senate. I worked for the Senate. She worked for the governor. And we were able to pass some really important legislation related to um, aid to needy families and um, legislation also to uh, create a structure for having deadbeat dads honor their child support obligations. She went on to be the um, chief administrative officer at Cummins and at the time was chief counsel. And she called and said, hey, this job's open. Uh, we'd like to talk to you about it. And so I went and talked to the head of government relations. And, and I realized that Cummins really saw its job and its mission is shareholder value, but it's also one about making the communities in which they operate great places to live, work, and invest. So they brought me on to work on that project. Um, and the downturn happened. And so my job became going to the communities where we had to right-size our employment base to get to weather the storm and really working with those communities to say, okay, we have to do this, but how do we align the resources we have to provide our employees a soft landing or a pause in work with the resources you have to help them reset and retools? And so a lot of the work was just reaching out and connecting with all those community resources to make sure that we did the best we could by our employees during that difficult time. And it was just a powerful experience to be part of a company that really did the, everything it could within the, its means to look after people, even if they couldn't keep them employed. At the same time, they reassigned me to work on a project with the CEO where 10 CEOs from the US and 10 CEOs from Brazil identified common issues that got in the way of workforce development, trade, and commerce between the two countries and recommended reforms to the two governments. And so that was a really powerful experience because you're working with the White House, you're working with state, commerce, and these um, captains of industry, these amazing men and women leading these companies that really wanted to strengthen trade, not solely to generate profit for shareholders, but also to make life better in the two countries. And so it was really an interesting experience. I'll never forget um, this one experience. Um, and it says a lot about the CEO at the time. So I was responsible for organizing these visits to the agencies to present our agenda. And between commerce and state, um, you always have to show your ID to get in the building. Well, between commerce and state, I dropped my ID on the street. So we get to state department and I have no ID. So I had to talk in front of our CEO. I had to try to talk my way into a meeting with the secretary of state at the time who was Hillary Clinton. And I did get in, but it delayed the meeting for about five minutes. And I walk in there and Secretary Clinton looks at me and says, oh, so glad you could join us today. And I'm thinking, oh, crap, I am going to lose my job when this is over. It was right after she'd fallen and hurt, in her, hurt her arm. So she might have just been in a bad mood that day. But I did feel embarrassed because I was like, go on with the meeting. Anyway, it waited. Meeting went great. was fine. And I walked out. I was thinking I'm going to get it. And the CEO said, here's the thing I look at. It's how you respond to the unexpected. And you took that on with calm, cool, and confidence, and also good humor. And he goes, I know that you're like psyched out about this. So you need to let it go because you've handled it extremely well. Fast forward, I think that was his way of giving me that Ted Lasso advice, be a goldfish. 
because that was in my head for the next week and my boss. Not enough Ted Lasso references on the podcast yet. Thank you for reminding us all that if we're not sure what we should do, just watch Ted Lasso. Uh, exactly. I love it, JT. And so uh, tell me about the uh, when the siren call of the IU Alumni Association, uh, when, when you heard that, what was the catalyst to go back into actually quite a different role than you'd had. I mean, it wasn't like you kind of, even with your, you know, leaving and, and, and coming back, you know, the boomerang, if you will, it wasn't straight up the alumni association. So that's a really interesting re-entry point that obviously has served you and the community really well. Yeah, um, I think um, I went, part of my motivation for Cummins was one, when somebody calls you who's a friend and asks you to do something, you have to pursue it, explore it. And also I always look at it, what could I gain by doing something that's gonna make me better tomorrow than I am today? And so part of it was motivated by that, but I also always wanted to know if I could make it in the private sector. And I think over the 18 months that I was at Cummins in the middle of a downturn with access to all those leaders, I realized I could, but then I kind of said, okay, do I wanna spend 10 years trying to get into the C-suite here as a gamble, or should I take what I've learned here and go back and try to improve higher education? And so when this job came, that job came open at the alumni office, I thought, well, maybe this is a way to do that. And so I, I put my hat in the ring and uh, it was probably the best decision I've ever made. That was the most transformational, and remains the most transformational personal and professional journey um, I've, I think I've ever been on. Um, and so tell me about the interview process, uh, how you felt, you know, did you feel confident? Was it a, a stretch? Just where were you kind of, what, what was your headspace when you, when you threw your hat in the ring? Oh, uh, when I do interviews, I over-prepare. So I come up with every possible question I could be asked and I write and rewrite and re-rehearse all the answers. And I just, search everything I can. I networked. It was probably my biggest lobbying job because I talked to anybody that would talk to me that knew anything about the Alumni Association. And so I went into it really super prepared. And, um, and I'd learned a lot from my interview at Michigan State too, where in higher education, there are often academic leaders who make up their mind quickly. And no matter what you say, there's no right answer. And so when I encountered that difficult dean you know, or um, crusty vice president, I just answered their questions straight on and squarely and accepted that if they didn't like what I said or whatever, there's nothing I could do about it. And because my job wasn't to be accepted by them or liked by them, it was to be respected for what I knew. And so I just went into that interview being as authentic as I could and trying to hide how much I wanted that job because of the, the good I thought I could make. But I had no idea of what would unfold after that. It was just, it's been incredible. And so when you think about the first day on the job or the first week, uh, you're overseeing a, an alumni population of what's the latest count? We're now at 729,519 living alumni. And so I, I can't even recite that. Um, that uh, is a lot. And uh, where do you start? I mean, what do you do in week one in a role like that? Are you kind of doing an audit, uh, 
you know, town hall tour. I mean, it, 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 the sheer size of that community uh, stands out among the world uh, education institutions. And um, I don't know, what, what do you think about when you reflect on that first 30, 60, 90 days, first year? Oh, it was overwhelming because it's a, it was a lesson in what didn't I ask that I should have asked. Um, the financial position was not great because they'd been running structural deficits and they really hadn't dealt with it like they needed to. Um, we knew we had the resources, but our financial reporting was not clear. We had no means of knowing if we were doing a good job and all of our people were busy being busy. So it was really overwhelming at the beginning because I, I kind of approached these things like, okay, what is our purpose and mission? What are the values that drive how we do our work? And then also trying to figure out what are we actually doing and who's doing it? And of course, you know, how do we know if we're doing a good job? And so at the beginning, it was just overwhelming because there was none of those things in place. A lot of really good hardworking people, a lot of volunteers that believe in the university and um, just a lot to figure out, a lot to understand. And it became pretty overwhelming at the beginning just because it was hard to get my arms around all of it. Luckily, there were a number of people that were had been there a while and um, that I could rely on. And we just began to kind of chip away and work through, through it all. And uh, it was just incredible growth experience. When you think about where you are today, let's call it roughly 10 years later, a little bit more than that. Obviously, you got there at the end or in the midst of a financial crisis. We've just lived through the pandemic. But when you think about the before and after of where the Alumni Association was and where it is today and where you want it to be, what are the things that stand out? Um, I think the thing I'm proudest of is that the place um, has a culture where people care about one another, they trust one another, and the staff, the volunteers, particularly our board members, all believe in what we're trying to do and know why we're doing what we're doing. And the best part is in the role I'm in now, um, while I have kind of signatory authority at this point at the Alumni Association, and you know, and I'm fully responsible for the foundation, um, the team at the Alumni Association is at a point where they don't really need me because they're good leaders that know what they're doing. And so it's been really gratifying to watch um, Tricia Revere Stumpf take over as executive officer because she is just an incredible leader. And it's just been so fun to work with her over a decade and um, Kelly Carnahan and Rachel McAfee and just, um, I, there's too many people to name. There's 54 committed souls over there and they've taught me so much that the best part is that organization is on a safe and sound trajectory. It's very well aligned to can make demonstrable commitments to institutional advancement. It doesn't exist to perpetuate itself. Its total mission is to build loyalty in the institution. We measure that. Um, all of our programs, we know if we're doing a good job. The staff feel a sense of purpose. And through this pandemic, it's been amazing to watch them care for one another. And so for me, building an organization that's not dependent on a single individual's will or vision alone has been one of the most gratifying things. And the people that taught me that was possible work there. Really well said. The pandemic uh, was ramping up as your campaign was concluding. And following that, 
you had the opportunity to uh, assume leadership of the foundation. Was that something you had hoped for, expected, had been in the works to the extent you're able to share? Um, was it a, a tough decision? Just what was that process like? Um, when I asked my drum major self, um, that kid had no idea. When I asked my student leader self, that young, naive adult had no idea. And when I took the job as the alumni officer for the university, it was never anything I thought I would end up doing. Um, and part of it's because I have so much respect and reverence for the, the mission of the foundation and the people that have occupied this office. I mean, I wear a tie to work every day out of respect for them and for all of our donors. Um, Cause it's a, I, I, I texted, there's a couple of them. I know I work with, there's three of them that really all have been really good to me and mentors um, pretty much throughout my life. Um, and I texted all three of them a few months ago and I said, you know, I've become better acquainted with the leadership challenges and the personal growth opportunities of a role you occupied. And I just want you to know how much more that deepens my respect for you. And so, um, I'm loving this. So, so giving I just more, am so grateful for the opportunity that I never imagined unfolding. But given how much uh, understanding you had of Indiana University and the amount of collaboration that must have occurred with the foundation over the years, there were still areas where you said, wow, or I didn't realize that. When you think about some of those um, aspects where you've got greater appreciation what what stands out that maybe your peers that haven't yet been in a seat like the current one uh, might not appreciate sure that's a good question well first i mean you and i've known each other long enough that you know i kind of think differently than most people in institutional advancement and i blame that on the center on philanthropy um i think it starts by understanding if you want to be a leader in this field you have to see it as a calling, not a career. You have to be motivated by the work um, of making a difference. Like at home, we have a sign in our house that my wife and I talk about pretty frequently that says, what difference did you make today? And I think you really have to try to focus on that. That's one of the lessons I've, I've picked up from this, um, but from the work of the alumni and now here. Um, so that that's probably one thing I'd say, and I and I, you know, the older I get, the less um, impressed I am with gunners. I'm really impressed with the people that are often working, not seeking attention, but really are focused on building those internal coalitions in the university, or steadily developing relationships with donors and facilitating and enabling what they do. The person that's kind of a servant leader that's really building the capacity of other people. And not the folks that are out there waving in front of me as fast as they can to get attention or the student leaders that are the ones that are like the altruistic boundary spanners that solve problems or alumni leaders like you. I mean, like you're doing what you're doing because you love Brown and you saw something you could make better. You took your education and your professional experience and you put it in service to the mission of making um, the relationships between Brown graduates and Brown better. And then it turned into something that could be scaled. And you you weren't satisfied with that because you've become a thought leader in this field. And so that's the other thing I'd say is pay attention to the people around you. 
put yourself in places where people are smarter than you, better than you, more thoughtful than you, um, that'll hold you accountable. I mean, that's why I, I, you know, I respect you because you've always been that way with me. And that's what this job has taught me. Spend your time where you can do the most good and spend your time with people that are the helpers. My wife and I talk about this all the time. Who are the people that are trying to make things better? Who are the people that show up or notice when you need help or that you're struggling and just pitch in? And that's probably the biggest lesson of this job is pay attention to that. Don't look at the disaster. Look at the disaster response. It's always better than the horrible thing that prompted everybody to rally to help people. Between your work at Indiana University in the Big Ten, uh, within the case community, and the Council uh, for Alumni Association executives, you've built a pretty amazing uh, community and, and friendships of difference makers. Tell me a little bit about the CAAE community and how that's evolved over the years, because that's actually one of the the venues where I, you know, I was able to sneak in one time, and you know that helped. Let's get to know each other a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's really, it's, I'm going to try not to get emotional because <clears throat> that's where I found my professional community. I mean, the people that do alumni work, I don't think are fully appreciated for the pastoral work they do because they're not competitive. They're really trying to help sustain a relationship between the university and its alumni, not all of which is measurable and not all of which gets exploited to the financial benefit of the institution. And often under-resourced relative to what's expected of them. And what I just found in the CAAE was, and the Big Ten in particular, is people that show up with their arms open, their minds open and their hearts um, open. And, and a group that's always looking to care for one another. And because they're also the first line of, of a caring response in a crisis in an institution. They're the ones that people call to express their grief, their joy, and everything in between. And so the CAAE for me was a great place to go because everybody was trying to make things better. And I, they accepted me as a member of that community. So I, I mean... I do have a lot of good friends from there. And the reason I get emotional is because one of the things I've had to give up um, is participation in that group. And that's my church. I miss them terribly. I just have to really be focused on positioning this institution for future success and engaging people, both philanthropically and otherwise, and also set up our amazing new president for success in the days ahead. She's amazing leader with a lot of great experience. And I have to get up every day focused on that. I mean, that's why I have two black suits and all I have to worry about every day is what shirt and tie I'm gonna put on because I just don't want any bandwidth of mental acuity misallocated to the purpose of trying to help set this place up um, for sustainability and fundraising and alumni engagement. And, and let's also talk being- about what that looks like, JT, recognizing that you took the role in the, in the midst of the pandemic but the work doesn't stop. And in a lot of ways, I think that the last year has shined a very bright light on the need for higher education to continue to drive impact and 
evolution of values the same way that you were as a student leader uh, in, in your student body context and others. And so when you think about setting this place up, when you think about Indiana University's position for the next decade, you know, what we've learned is between 2010 being a financial crisis, 2020 being a pandemic, it's hard to predict what even 10 years might uh, entail, but you've still got to develop a plan. So what does that look like? Or what are the frameworks that you're thinking about putting in place for this next chapter? Sure. Well, I was really lucky to have a a predecessor that really set us up on solid footing. He left with a plan in place. And that plan provides a really good framework and a discipline for us to stay focused on preparation for whatever comes next. It's also one where it's flexible. So as we gain experience, as we build a new team, as we um, get under harness with a vision of a new president and a new set of deans and vice presidents, I mean, there's more transition going on at IU right now than there has been in my whole 30 year love affair with the place in terms of all the leadership changes. Um, so, So as that goes on, we have kind of a framework that says, what do we need to do to achieve the next step change in fundraising? Um, And it also gives us a way to stay focused on preparation while we also adapt to new realities because that plan was written pre-pandemic or just kind of wrapped up at the pandemic. Um, And so we got a plan in place and that plan really is focused on how do we improve the donor experience? How do we really get behind and support our frontline alumni and development officers? And also how do we really um, diversify um, both the talent of on our board, our donor base, and our employee base. And so I think we've got a really solid framework that allows us to work through this transition. Um, So that's part of it. For me, one of the most important priorities is all about the talent of the board, our volunteers, and the staff, and how we prepare them to navigate in back toward whatever normal looks like in this new order of things. both in terms of, I think, a permanent revelation that we have a lot more work to do in being communities of diversity, equity, inclusion, um, most importantly measured by the depth of which people feel they belong without regard to their difference. Um, And also um, a world where we have to recognize that we may be more vulnerable than we thought. And that we also have people who fundamentally choose to think differently and not agree on things like science. And so I think um, talent, leading with empathy and grace and integrity is important and really developing the capacity of the people around me to lead within their own spheres of of, um, values and um, responsibility and really getting people to live their values too. We put all these values up everywhere in our organizations. Do we really hold each other accountable for behaving according to those values? And so a lot of it is culture and climate building is really a big part of my job. It's also um, getting to our donors and really talking less about the dollars and more about the impact of what they want to accomplish. Um, You know, one of the things that you said you were going to ask me is, um, you know, um, where is the advancement industry over investing? Um, I look at it differently. Shocker, I know. What are we overemphasizing? We need to stop talking about big dollars and start talking about big problems and big impact. Because too many of our announcements, too much of the things we talk about are how much did we raise? And we got this big gift. 
we don't talk about what the gift is going to do. And I can tell you firsthand in my first three months in this job that I'm right about this. I get a call out of the blue from an 85 year old gentleman in, in uh, Texas who met his wife here. He got a great education and he was calling because he was reading his gift agreement because he named a scholarship in her memory for early childhood education uh, students. He said, you know, I'm, I've got a PhD and I've been a dean of, a, of a students at the major institution and I'm reading this a gift agreement and I just want to make sure I understand one word in this agreement. It says this will be done in perpetuity. This gift will be, these scholarships will be made in perpetuity. Could you please tell me what that means? And I said, sure. It means this gift that you've given us means that we will keep a promise forever that we will see that a student gets these resources to pursue early childhood education. And because of the unique way he wrote his gift agreement, we get to tell the story of your wife every time we give this scholarship. And if we do that right, that student will carry forward your wife's values and her story and how he or she shows up in the classroom and in the community because they will be inspired by this and they'll be validated that you're worthy of being a leader or you're worthy of the, the field of endeavor that you're pursuing because somebody left resources that said, this is important and you having the opportunity to pursue it matters. His response cheerfully was, I love my alma mater. And I could say it loves you right back because you've created a benefit for generations to come. That is why we do the work. That has nothing to do with how big his gift was because the more people give, the more good we do. But when we focus on how much people give, we get away from how many people's lives are made better. And I think advancement overemphasizes big dollars to its detriment. JT, I love that story. It is so poignant. And at the same time, it highlights, you know, maybe a, a very big missed opportunity in the sector today, which is we try talking more and more about impact or the problems that can be solved, basically making the case to the donor. I don't think we do a very good job of making the case to the recipient why a donor gave and telling in this individual's impact the story of his wife. And I don't know, we get so obsessed with how do we make the case? How do we tell the story? How do we inspire the donor that, you know, helping create that virtuous cycle of, I want you to understand why I made this gift. I mean, how disconnected are we um, from why, you know, you as a beneficiary, me as a beneficiary of financial aid, the closest I got to understanding why that donor gave was a form letter that, you know, had the summary of what it was about. And I received it. I was blown away, but I never really understood what that meant or why that individual felt inspired to pay it forward. And I just wonder if there's maybe an opportunity to, to reverse the marketing campaign um, in a certain regard. Yeah. I know we do that sometimes. We do the donor profiles of why people give and so forth, but there's something different about what you just described and what you heard in his voice. Well, we also have new tools that could allow us to do a more effective job of managing and personalizing the, that part. Um, I think my ambition to be in a role like this long-term 
is because I think we're trying to change something pretty big and fundamental. There's a fine line between institutional need and institutional greed. And, and that some of that is what drives this. We always feel pressure to get one more gift. We always want more, we always need more. And at some point we also have to balance, are we honoring the commitments that we made to the donors that came before the next one? Are we really making sure that it's not even goes transcends donor intent. The donors I've known over the years and I've gotten to know more recently want to know that their gift mattered. That's what they care about. And stewardship is not just about cultivating a living person for another gift. Stewardship, look it up in the dictionary, is about honoring a legacies and traditions and enduring values. And to your point, once again, you and I violently agree We've got to find this balance between the next one and what we have and being grateful for that and honoring and stewarding that very carefully. I'd argue that, that to build on your point, that maybe some of our pipeline issues is because we haven't focused on that enough. And a lot of students probably come to universities saying, I worked hard, I got good grades and I earned my scholarship. And you know, I talked to older alumni, they say, I worked hard, I got decent grades and I needed that money to get a college education. There's a difference in that rhetorical mindset, sure. right? For and sure. so I think there is work here that we've got to factor into what we do to honor what we've got received, talk about its impact. And I think if we do that right. We're actually going to have um, people that will give more and stay more deeply involved because people have so many choices of where to put their money and their attention and I think those institutions that focus on a depth of relationship over breadth will be rewarded. The institutions that are really agile at collaborating around big ideas that solve big problems and leverage their resources in pursuit of those are gonna attract more donors. And, and here's the nerd part of that. Um, I had a colleague share some research that says of the gifts over 50 million made since 2020, most of them are heavily weighted toward big problems related that require extensive research, particularly in biomedical sciences. So that's a signal to me that depth over breadth is probably a good idea. I mean, I've had another uh, colleague and, and um, advisor, uh, former board member say, you know, there's gonna become a point where donors might really start to question why universities continue to escalate the cost and wonder whether their gifts are just subsidizing the continuous raising of tuition as opposed to a model of sustainability in higher education. You know, one of our alums has been outspoken on that. Um, and he's a donor too, but he's very outspoken on that point. And I think we've got to be attentive to that and not assume it's just a few people over here that could become a growing course. And to, to your point, the more we spend a little more time telling stories of impact and meaning may matter more than how much more we got in the next campaign. Well, what I know for sure is the stories are out there uh, and you hear them all the time in, in your journeys uh, in, in, when you speak with alumni and donors that are out there. And so the question is, how do we package them up and, and share and inspire the next generation? I, I have to conclude as we're at time, but I have two final points. One, I was a little bit concerned when you said that you have two black suits and that's it because you have built a reputation, a sortorial gentleman that you are, 
JT has some of the best blazers and suits in the entire, dare I say, the best dressed man in advancement. So have you lost your edge already at the foundation or what's going on? No, I still have battle dress. All right. Well, Lord meetings, we got to, you know, public speaking. Really back out there on the circuit, I, I, I'm sure that you'll make sure that those are well-pressed and ready to go. The second point I will make as we conclude, JT, is that when you get home tonight and you're talking with your wife and you say, what difference did we make today? You can say, I shared a lot of knowledge uh, with our friends uh, in the advancement community. And it is just such a privilege to be able to reconnect with you in this way. So I hope that you can uh, answer that question with conviction tonight. Thank you. I will. I may have to put that in writing. She doesn't believe anything unless it's in writing. <laughs> Thanks. I'll even this share the pleasure. audience. It's a real pleasure. Thank you so much. It's great to get caught up. And I hope that the listeners and watchers of this uh, take some inspiration or some encouragement or, or some challenge from it. And uh, and reach out. I'm here. And I'm yeah. glad to hear what they have think. I, I look, I would encourage you to reach out, uh, J. Thomas Forbes on LinkedIn, and you will, uh, you know, mention that you heard him on the podcast. Don't just do the blind intro. Try to add a little bit of commentary. Uh, it will be, uh, it will be for sure worth your while. And so, with that, we're going to conclude today's episode of the Rays Podcast. Thank you, J. T. Forbes, who is. Interim President at the Indiana University Foundation, Chief Executive Officer at the IU Alumni Association, and the pace car for the Little 500. <laughs> Thanks. Take care. Thank you, JT. It's great to see yeah. you, man. All right. We'll be in Thank touch. Yeah. Bye. Yeah.